This episode is brought to you by Apollo in Rocky 3 and his legendary quote, I am the tiger, Stallion. I am the tiger. Welcome to the Stefan Dyer Podcast, my people. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Stefan Dyer Podcast. I have here the unbreakable, the unmistakable, the highly capable Gustavo Chavez. I am so excited for him to be on the Stefan Dyer Podcast, where we welcome people with remarkable stories for amazingly vulnerable conversations. Gustavo is here, but he can't talk right now because I'm doing the famous intro. Gustavo Chavez is a made in Korea Ecuadorian who not so long ago became a Canadian citizen. Having lived in nine cities across seven different countries, Gustavo fueled his growth by continually exposing himself to waves of significant personal and professional change. Currently, Gustavo lives in Toronto with his wife, Caro, and works as a director of sales for Pivotry. I cannot be more excited to speak to the Wolf of Wall Street, Bay Street, Ecuadorian Street, on sales, leadership, being a nomad like I have been, and his many, many talents, not just imitation, but being extremely, extremely charismatic. My friends, please welcome Gustavo! How are you, my friend? I'm great. Thank you for having me here. I felt like you were going to jump into the ring and fight somebody. I was, I, like, I was mind blown. I don't think I have ever introduced myself as well as you introduced me right now. So that's... Uh... Bring me to your sales calls. Yeah, yeah, apparently. Like, hey, he's going to sell me so then I can sell you something else. I love it, man. Dude, every one of our friends, including Obama, who's been on the podcast, yeah, says that you are... The greatest salesman that we've uh, that we've known at, at, at our group of friends. Uh, I don't think they're lying. And we're going to get into sales. But tell me a little bit about why did you move around so much? And how did that contribute to you being so charismatic, outgoing? And I feel like you have this... I don't even call it... A, I'm not even going to call it a double-edged sword. But I feel like you got this... You know when to turn it on. And you know when to turn it off. If it's like, let's party. You can be the party animal. If it's business, you can be the business guy. If it's sales, you can sell. If it's like being serious, you can also be that guy. And I feel like living in different countries gave you that. Because I've also lived in five different countries. And having to adapt and make new friends... Kind of not not uh, not only is it a like masters in self awareness, but because you get to know a lot about yourself. But mm. when you know yourself, you can know others. And then by having to make new friends, you have to read a room. You you become a master at fitting in. How? Why did you move around so much, and how did this impact your personality? Whew. Okay, so my parents is really the reason why I had to move around. I was actually, to your point, born in Korea, Ecuadorian, born in Korea. Oh, really? Born in Korea? Yeah. Actually. I know you lived in Korea. No, no, no. I was born there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, and yeah. were you also made there? I I believe so. <laughs> I believe so. The timing the timing aligns. Um, but yeah, I was born in Korea. My my father still um, in active duty in Ecuador as an Ecuadorian diplomat, not in Ecuador, currently in Indonesia. 
So it gives you an idea of like how currently crazy, right now, right now, like wow. this moment, he's actually probably sleeping. Right? He's about That's to insane. about to wake up in a few hours for his day. And, and by that, events. you mean like a like a diplomat as a like an ambassador? Or? Yeah, yeah. He's he's the ambassador for Ecuador and in, 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 in well based out of Jakarta. Yeah, for different countries in the region. So very it's nice. Cool. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So so basically, he his very first post uh, like uh, abroad away from Ecuador was in Seoul in Korea. Wow. And what's even funnier is my mom was also working in the, like, I guess, foreign um, foreign ministry. I mean, it's exteriores yeah, in yeah. Spanish. And um, they met there. They started dating. And shortly, not, I mean, not immediately after, but kind of shortly after they started dating, yeah. um, he, he was basically told, you got to go. And he just basically said, all right, uh, do you want to come with me? Come like marry me and come with me. And she was like, "Okay, fine, let's do this." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and how so, long have been they uh, have they been married now? Um, I think I think I was born two years after they got married. So twenty years married. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> like eighteen. <laughs> okay, now, so they would be yeah thirty six years That's roughly. Insane. Yeah, thirty six, thirty seven. And after Korea, where did you go? So after Korea, I so was born there, spent three years there, then went to Ecuador um, as a... Did as you a learn baby. how to speak Korean as a baby? I did. Well, <laughs> what's funny is I, I call myself Korean when it's convenient to me to be yeah. Korean. Like, oh, I know Korean food and I know this. And yeah, you know, K-pop, I love K-pop. And I, I love it, right? But obviously it's it's cultural appropriation and I just, I just, <laughs> I, I just, I just joke a lot about it. Um, but yeah, you know... After that, I went to Ecuador, and this was the first time really meeting my family, like my extended wow. family, my cousins, and being surrounded by languages that weren't, for the most part, English. Because in Korea at the time, there was a big U.S. presence, a big, yeah. in, and still is, right? Um, big U.S. base. So, like, my parents used to hang out a lot there and met, met a lot of other diplomats from other countries, mm-hmm. and, and, and Ecuador as well, that were just kind of hanging out there. So, English was kind of the common tongue amongst everybody. Yeah. Went to Ecuador and um, I joined like a school there for just a couple of years. I was there. I spent probably three years there, and then we were sent to Belgium. Belgium. So I went from like not learning how to speak and write anything to starting to learn how to speak Spanish <laughs> to like full on learning learning French, right? Wow. Because in Brussels, that's the that's the uh, the first language there, right? And and you, you don't really speak uh, Flemish. This is the other the other language in Belgium, but. It was kind of crazy, right? My none of my parents spoke French either, but that that comes with a job, just having having to adapt and taking courses. And while we were in school, um, my like my mom would take French courses, so yeah. she could understand things and help with like other other things. The day to day, the day to day in the family, and um, my dad was also learning kind of like on the job, like more specific like job related stuff. It's kind of the opposite. He was pretty useless at the at the day to day stuff. <laughs> And he only learned French for work related yeah, stuff. Yeah, technical yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, over time. And he had a gift with languages. He he kind of has a good like hearing, so he 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 pronounces words pretty well pretty well. Mm-hmm. He um he has a good grasp for languages, especially Latin languages like uh, Portuguese or Italian and, and French. It became easy for him to just communicate at a very basic level. He never got like super deep. Yeah. But just good enough. So then after that Two years and a half later, we go to Geneva. Uh, so this is still like elementary school time, yeah. but, but this is the first time in years that I'm like, 
I speak the language. <laughs> you know, think about it, right? Like I'm going into third grade. And this is the first it's time in my life. Man. This is the first time in my life where I'm like, I can communicate with other kids. Wow. Right? How old were you? Third grade? I don't know, like eight, nine eight, years old? Eight, yeah, eight. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy, right? French. Yeah. 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 Um, and after, so this is, these are becoming your formative years. How long did you stay in Switzerland and what happened next? So after, after Europe, that was basically like the last leg in Europe. Uh, I was there for another two and a half years, finished elementary school almost basically. Then went back to Ecuador. By the time I went back to Ecuador, I was like, I, I had never written anything Spanish in my life. <laughs> but I, well, you spoke Spanish at home with your parents. I spoke Spanish at home with my dad and we spoke French with my mom, which, which became like a thing, like from the, from the Belgian days. Yeah. To learn. To not lose it, maybe. Not lose it and learn it and just like full on immersion. It's not like you get an escape from. From mm-hmm. French when you get home, and she like wanted it. to learn it as well. Yeah, and she still speaks it too, which is kind of crazy. Do you still speak to each other French? Or? No, 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 not anymore. Because <laughs> uh, then other things happen, right? And then life took us different places. But so then three years in Ecuador was just great. Me actually spending time with my family and getting closer to my cousins and like aunts, uncles, grandparents. That all that was great. Also, getting a little bit more familiar with what Ecuador is, right? Yeah. When you're, the first time I was there was three. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so learning what Ecuadorian food is and what uh, the 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 different parts of Ecuador are. Um, I didn't like most people that are staying in their country. I won't say most, but many people that stay in their country just take it for granted and yeah. they don't explore it enough until they leave, and then all of a sudden they want to go back and 100%. play tourists. So very much that that was very much the case. Um, and then after that, we went to the States. Where? Uh, Washington, D.C. So he oh, was working out of D.C. Oh, yeah? Cool. Yeah. Do you, do you like it? Have you been? I've been many times. In, in yeah. 2001 was one of the, because my, my, my uncle lived, worked at the International Monetary Fund. And when we lived in El Salvador in 2001, there was a huge earthquake. So right. we went there for like two months, like as the country stabilized and then now my sisters live there, so I went last year, and uh, I like it a lot. Yeah, it's a really cool city, and and it's turned into this like capital, boring, kind of like nothing happens kind of city to a much more yeah. lively, um, just fun city with things to do and things to explore. I, I really like. My it sisters live in Navy Yard. I think it's called Navy Navy Yard. I think it's a newer, I younger demographic place. I was much younger, so like you know, <laughs> my, my, my my concept of cool was skipping class at some point, right? And, and you going weren't to, like partying going... at Navy Yard when you were eleven. <laughs> no, no. My my idea of, of cool back then was like we're skipping PE class and we're going to Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. No and we're not telling anybody. You know, that was kind of my idea of cool. Um but you know we spent we spent some time there and I think one of the things that that happens too, and then that we haven't really talked about is why so much change because mm-hmm. it's normal for diplomats to be moving, moving um, from place to place, but it's not as normal to move as frequently, and it has to do a lot with the political instability that we we see in our countries. And That's when insane. when yeah. people like my my dad started in in the foreign service career, his foreign service career, um, like from basically the very bottom mm-hmm. as a career diplomat, which means that he was not politically affiliated at any point. But in our countries, as you know, uh, political affiliation can uh, can do a lot of things. Good, good, or, break good, or, or, break it, yeah. good or bad, right? But the point is, if you're not, it's almost like if you're not one of us, then you're just not one of us. And yeah. So every every time there was a new change of power, you know, the, they brought their people, they brought their team, and it, it almost 
kind of happened every single time, right? And every time it was like, okay, we have new people coming in, so we have to go somewhere else. We're told to go somewhere else, and this this became a constant thing. So this was um this was a bit of like the the theme around it, and our situation in Washington was cut short, very like much shorter than usual, even because of that particular reason, uh, with you know kind of like some uh, literally some misunderstandings at the time with like you know, the government at the time thinking they wanted to place their people, but they didn't, they didn't really understand who their people were. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, they, they saw something as silly as taking down like a, like a painting or like a portrait of the president because the walls were being painted as a reason to say that is uh subversive. Wow. That is subversive. And this person does not belong here anymore. We're going to ship them to other places. And that happened to a number of people. At the time, but again, it's kind of surreal, right? But yeah, this is this is not in American politics because I talk to other other um, people that have had similar experiences, and they're like, "Oh yeah, one time," <laughs> and then they tell me their story, and I'm like, "Ah, oh, I guess I guess we're all messed up in a way, right?" Which is kind of tricky. But then um, after DC, after DC, we went to Caracas, Venezuela. No way! In your teenage years, yes, which was perfect for me. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know it was going to be perfect. I I originally. Hated the idea what of leaving Washington. This? It was from 2004 to 2007. Wow. Yeah. So things weren't that bad. Hold on a second. Things were not that bad. But when I was there, people said it was the worst it's ever been. Yeah. And it cannot get any worse. That's the constant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Always. How old were you? So it's like you're, you're, it's like when I lived in Mexico, 14, 15, it's like my party years. Yeah, I'm totally. Starting to party and socialize. Totally. So what this gave me, right, because I, I loved, like, life in Washington was great. It was, it was safe. I liked school. I liked, like, my friends. I liked everything. But it was very, like, very American. You know, yeah. like, my, my lifestyle was The very... most American. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tremendous. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he... I was thinking about Trump right now. <laughs> um... But what that did to me was actually introduce me to my culture, not Venezuelan culture, but like Latino culture. Yeah. Because huge. I always associated with like, ah, that's old people stuff, like merengue, salsa. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then all of a sudden I go to Venezuela and like we go to a party and I see like the prettiest girls were like dancing with like all the guys. And I'm like, I don't know how to dance. I don't know how to like talk to a girl like these other guys know how to uh-huh. talk to girls. Like, and, and for me it was just like a culture shock, but like the, the food again became this, this um, kind of like new thing. We go from like American food to arepas and cachapas and, and ayacas and all these. Empanadas, And the versions of the same things that we have all, all across all of Latin America, but like, you know, the, the Venezuelan version of it. Dude, I loved my time in Venezuela. I had, Absolutely. I had a great, great, great time. The people there were fantastic. It's unfortunate that things happened the way it happened for Venezuela. Yeah. I actually... My, I told my parents when I was graduate, about to graduate, I think I want to stay in Venezuela and do my, <laughs> in my can do university here. And they were like, no, it's nah, not going to happen. Nah, man, not a good idea. What was your, <laughs> I'm very curious because when you're changing a lot, I, I, as, as you know, my family is Peruvian, but I was born in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Then I moved to El Salvador, then Mexico, then Montreal and Toronto. Yeah. And, and basically my ins with the new school, with the new friends, with the new blah, blah, blah. My ins were soccer, yeah, and probably humor, yeah, and and sports in general. Uh, I was a like kind of responsible student, but I I was always the guy laughing at everybody's jokes in class. 
I, I got kicked out of class because yeah. I laughed so much. But soccer and, yeah. and, and humor were my ins to connect with everybody. Yeah. I'm cu- very cu- very similar probably in your case. What, what were your ins or what, what did yeah. you, how did you connect with people? That's a good question. Um, you know, I remember one of my first few conversations, like I guess both in the U.S. and in Caracas, being about music. Uh-huh. And, and just like, you know, would have like my, my disc man at the time. Yeah. This is actually right when the iPod was coming out, right? But I would have my disc man or my MP3 player and would be like, what do you, what do you listen to? And it was just like, uh, I don't know, uh, Metallica or something. Yeah. Something crazy. Like, yo, I like Metallica. That's cool. And now all of a sudden you have like a little something. It's like, hey, uh, we're going to get some empanadas with, with the other guys who want to come with. I'm like, yeah, I want to. Let's go get some empanadas. <laughs> and were <laughs> but, these, uh, schools, like where all their international students would go to? No. So generally speaking, because we also, we, we rarely aligned with the calendar year when we had to move, uh-huh. which is also inconvenient. So it was like wherever were was the best school you. we could get yeah. that would take us, given the fact that they're like already. Well, like, you and your brother you know, too. Exactly. My brother it, and I. Is it, is it just the two of you or do you it's have more siblings? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Us, yeah. That I know. That I know. <laughs> Santi. Shout out. Shout out to Santi. Shout out to Santi. In Ottawa? Gatineau? In Gatineau, yeah. In Gatineau. Yeah. We're going on the 28th. Uh, shout out oh, to really? everybody in Ottawa. 28, 28 or 29, we're going to Montreal and Ottawa to do a show. Santi, we'll see you there. Bring all your friends <laughs> and everybody who can at least understand hola at this uh, comedy show. And he is going to come to Toronto. <laughs> and then he's yeah. going to come to Toronto. his own show. show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. How did you end up, tell me, you graduated high school in Venezuela? I did. And I did. how and why, okay, this is, I, <laughs> I know where this is going. New Brunswick, <laughs> yeah, yeah. out of all places, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the second Ecuadorian capital. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Because Diego, who is probably <laughs> listening to this, our great friend Diego Sua, and, and several other Ecuadorians. Santi, Pevan, Andres, Pevan, the Andres, other Pablo. The other Pablo, uh... And and uh, well, I know Tienen is not is not uh, Ecuadorian, but Tienen was also part of them. Yeah. How and why? I also went to I went to high school in, in Quebec. Yeah, but I never really con not even consider. I just I didn't even know Canada that well to be understand. I went to to the University of Toronto, but the director of sales at the University of New Brunswick has to be like some sort of a genius had- to recruit. A billion Ecuadorian? How? Why New Brunswick? They so they had a really they were really smart about the recruiting in Ecuador, yeah. specifically, right? Because I I was told about this when I lived in Venezuela, but the connection was made because my counselor in Venezuela knew a bunch of Ecuadorians that went to this university that she felt was a good fit for me because it was, it was a number of reasons that I can elaborate in a moment. But it was like you should look into this university, and I'm like, okay. And to me, the biggest thing was I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> oh, and yeah. but I but I had to go to university. Yeah, because yeah, that's yeah. what people do, you know. Yeah. So I had to go to university, and I did not want to start an engineering degree. Um, I did not want to get into medicine. I did not want to get into law. <laughs> I did not want to get Diplo- into diplomacy. My my dad was like, "If you want to be a diplomat, just don't do it for Ecuador, please." Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> What did you study business? No, not even, right? Because I, I actually, I ended up studying like political science because that was like dad's influence. Really? And, and somewhere along the way, I, I come, came across a communications class and I'm like, this is something I could keep doing for the rest of my 
my uh, I didn't think like long long term, but at least for the for the rest of my undergrad, I could keep taking these classes. It yeah, communications and journalism and and just the writing piece and the 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 PR aspect of it and a little bit of theory because it was a, it was a liberal arts school, so it was very like you know. Uh, liberal <laughs> very liberal and very like pie in the sky stuff aspirational stuff yes. as well um with with obviously some some practical stuff but yeah like i i actually didn't think of like i want to go to new brunswick and that's what i want to do i had no idea new brunswick existed right but when i was told look at the school here's why i think it's going to be good for you you can go there take a bunch of classes you yeah. don't have to declare a major into your second year um you can take a bunch of things and you actually, this university actually encourages you to take a bunch of things that are not part of your, what they consider your major, even after you yeah. declare it. Um, so the idea is you, you're, you get well-rounded out a bunch of things. And there was a very, again, aspirational idea that you become, it helps you become a better citizen, a better person, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, all right, that sounds good. And if I, <laughs> and, and if I don't like it, if I don't like it, or I find something else that I like, maybe I'll transfer somewhere else after two years later. So that's, I mean, I didn't end up transferring. I, I ended up staying there for, uh, A, I got really involved. Like I got, I started like SWOW 0.0 with Diego. <laughs> what was it called? The Lua. Lua, Lua. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lua with, with, Diego. with Diego. My first year, my first year. With Organizing parties in New Brunswick with Diego, Latin flavor. Diego looks at me, he goes, you're Ecuadorian, right? You know, he's like, yeah. We should talk. How do you know? You know I have, uh, you have an Ecuadorian jersey on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your, your, your face is painted with the colors of Ecuador. That's what, anyway. yeah. Yeah. And so, so how, how does this go? I, I love these stories because obviously, okay, like Steve Jobs says, you can only connect the dots looking backwards in many ways. And, and Diego and Swan and the, our group of friends have been instrumental for me being here and, and, and doing stand-up comedy. The first time we did comedy was at Latin Live in Swan. And in many ways, this whole group of friends has been for, for mm. over the past 10 years because my life before 2012-13 was very Canadian. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been very instrumental. But I always like to de deconstruct how you came to, to, like how we came to be where we are right now. And... How did you go from being somebody who maybe didn't know what you wanted to do, took a communications class, obviously had probably very good interpersonal skills by that time because you had moved around a lot and that mm -hmm. kind of brings that uh, in uh, out of you mm -hmm. and going to a incredible salesperson who has gone from company to company, you live in New York City as well. It's not you. It's not like salesmen. It's not just being charismatic because there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. There's a lot of taking feedback from potential mentors. There's. I just did a cold sales call downstairs for a sponsorship at a Dominion Waivers and Pardons, uh, and dude, I was in there for an hour, and I came out. I sold like a seven thousand dollars in sponsorship the the day before, and then I went there and I came out, and I'm like, man, I should quit this sales thing. <laughs> And then I, today I sold like another like $5,000 for the Latin Comedy Fest. And it, it's an up and yeah. down battle and you can't just depend on energy and motivation. Like it's, it, people don't, people think like, ah, oh, it's easy to sell. You just have to be charismatic. But no, it has a, a lot of work behind it. What have you done to become so good through the years? Because 
You're probably better now than you were 10 years ago. How did you get into sales and how did you discover this was a path that you wanted to pursue? I always liked this aspect of interpersonal skills to your yeah. point. And in my later years of university, I actually went out of my way because uh-huh. I felt the program was not giving me enough practical experience on my way out. So before I had to do like the, like the, like what's called the co-ops and, and the internships. Although they had co-ops. The well, it was more of an internship, okay. but yeah, um, that was, that was mandatory for the program. I actually went a year earlier and did my own internship. Wow. I, like I, I was, Where? I was just, I actually was like, wherever I can get it. I ended up getting one with, um, a, a team on campus that was like communications for, for the university itself. Uh-huh. And then that summer, I'm like, okay, I don't want to just have, yeah, I was essentially staying every summer and, and working like most Canadians do and all that. Yeah. I'm like, now this, this year I'm going to invest in the career piece and I'm going to find whatever it takes. So I actually uh, found some contacts in Ecuador that gave me an internship there that, but the, the point that gave you an internship in Ecuador, in, in Ecuador. So I went okay, back to Ecuador idea. and I did a four month long internship with uh, basically the group that owns uh, in Ecuador that owns KFC, Baskin Robbins, Juan Valdez, Pizza Hut, Pizza Hut yeah. um, and, a, and a bunch of others. Right. And I think that was that was pretty cool because I was given there was no like PR person and they were like, let the intern do it. You know? <laughs> but I, but I, I also had a lot of rope because they were like, we don't get it. We don't care. We just know it's cool. Just do it. And, yeah. and honestly, they just let me do a lot of things that as an intern, I don't think many interns have had the chance to do like things that I did. So I was, I was super excited about it and meeting people and calling people and getting like, you know, finding almost like managing a budget almost as an, as a, as an intern, like 21, 20, 21 and going and get, getting these things to happen. But I was excited. More, yeah. that's, the, that's the best part. I was not afraid of screwing up. I was just. That's super important. I was just excited about it. And I didn't care about failure. I'm like, if I fail, I fail, you know? Uh-huh. And that's kind of been one of the reasons why I think I've been successful because in order to be a good salesperson, yes, charisma helps, but there's a lot of really successful people that are, are, are salespeople. And the first thing you see is not necessarily charisma. You might, you might see them as serious and like maybe... Uh, confident confident to 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 a point where you know people come across as arrogant and cocky but there's there's just to your point there's so much work and i think it comes down to bravery for the clothes no but bravery just in general just being like i'm gonna be bold with my decisions and i'm going to take some calculated risks i'm gonna i'm going to recognize that they're risks that's important because you understand um that you're just not being reckless either yeah right or completely unself-aware of the things you're doing, but you identify them as risk and you see which risks am I going to take? And, and this is as part of a simple phone call. I'm going to ask a question I've never asked before. And this is how you start early on. You just get on the phone, you take, you dial for dollars. Basically you say, okay, call these companies. This is my, my time in Salesforce, call these companies and get them to do business with us. Essentially, I'm just oversimplifying it. I'm like, okay, sounds good. And I would just call and call and call and something wasn't working because it, it just wasn't. So I was just like, I'm going to try something else. Yeah. And that started getting results. But also... I what were those ask- little things? I know you can't get into the nitty gritty, but what are some absolute don'ts for cold calling? Or what are some musts <laughs> for cold calling that in order for people to not hang out, hang up on you? 
that you've most discovered people, through the years. Yeah, I feel like most people don't pick up the phone, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, it takes a few calls to reach them. And I think it's about being, like, if I get 10 seconds of their time, how do I get another 30 seconds of their time? Yeah, the hook. Yeah, you yeah. Hook like, how do I hook them with 10 seconds? And you have to, like, know that at some point, somebody's going to pick up the phone. Because this is one of my early lessons. I was calling probably call hundreds of people before the first person picked up. And then when the person picked up the phone, I froze. I had oh. no idea. I was like, I literally am trained for this. I was, I've been looking for this call, but the second someone picked up the phone, I was just not expecting it. I was, I was basically on autopilot, just leaving voicemails. And then somebody picks up the phone. I'm like, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, ah, uh, this is, uh, 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 uh. and then I'm like, damn it. You know, I screw that one up. But then again, I remember I'm like, this is a game of no's, right? This is a game of no's of, of people ignoring you. So what's that going to do? Lesson learned, right? At any point, somebody can pick up the phone. So stay focused. Just keep keep going. And if you screw up, screw stay up. ready for when the opportunity. Yeah. And if you screw up, you screw up, right? I think that's the other the other piece. But but you, you also mentioned preparation before. Yeah. It's important. And it's not about having a script, but it's about just being confident about what am I going to say what if, why am I calling this person in, in what do I know about this person that might be helpful in my in my hook? Um, what do I know about the company? What can I read about it in advance? And you can't do that necessarily for every company you call because there's there's a lot, right? Especially if your list is high, if you get measured based on activities. But you can basically cherry pick the ones you think are, you know, you want to focus on. And there's no silver bullet, there's no like secret. Uh, recipe that will guarantee you these things no matter what people say i think it comes down to discipline yeah and the discipline of just keep doing it and it's gonna happen and, and i like that and this is you talked about motivation and creating your motivation creating your energy sometimes there's no motivation there's no energy uh, yeah but that's when the discipline kicks in absolutely right absolutely for you like a, for me in the comedy world at least something changed when i started to read books and take workshops because a lot of people would say and still say comedians say like oh no the best teacher is getting on stage and and yeah that's fine and some people say the best teacher in sales is 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 cold calling or making those phone calls or being in sales calls but experience is is costly you know Mm -hmm. and it for example i always say this if it takes me 17 years getting on stage to make it to Netflix. Cool. But if I get the same time on stage as all those times that I'm going to do it anyway, mm. and I read comedy books, and I take a bunch of comedy workshops, and I ask for feedback, and I review my videos, it might take me nine years to get to Netflix. So that's what a lot of people don't see. Tony Robbins says like people get... People get rewarded in public for the things they do in private. <laughs> what things have you done that you could recommend to people, maybe starting in sales or potential newcomers, Latinos who listen to this podcast a lot? Are there any courses that you would recommend or, or books? To me, the, the most influential have been the Wolf of Wall Street Straight Line Persuasion that I have for free. If anybody wants to message me, I can give you the Google Drive. Uh, <laughs> and the the uh, Never Split the Difference. Such a good book. By, by FBI negotiator Chris Voss. Especially for introverts because at least I saw sales as like 
I'm very non-confrontational and I in the movies or I don't know why I picture sales as somebody like bullying you into doing something yeah. or pre- peer pressuring you. But with that book, you can almost, even if you're an introvert, 100% do it in a non-confrontational way and still steer the conversation into a desired outcome for you and, and a win-win for everybody. What what things have been influential with you apart from experience or, or maybe mentors? What I've, has shaped your sales style? So I've had great mentors and they take like nuggets of wisdom from each one of them because of, they've all been fairly different, but they've left me with good like reminders of some certain things like come almost like conventional wisdom, like rules, like and these, these are not things you're going to necessarily find in Maybe you'll find them in books, but I've heard them from them. Yeah. So I associate them as, as my mentors who have given me some of these bits of wisdom that I apply as, as soon as I can recognize an application for those. Um, in terms of books, I think I personally liked, um, to read a lot of books about sales methodology. So I like, I'm a, I'm a practical person. I like, I like theory, but I also like to have different tools. Yeah under my belt that I can, that I can use to recognize situations better. Yeah. So there's, for example, there's a lot of different like frameworks, um, like a very common framework, for example, for qualifying a deal, uh, whether or not there's a real good deal in front of you is something called BANT. That's like pretty industry standard. BANT? BANT. What does that stand for? It stands for budget, authority, need, and timeline. Mm. Okay. So you need to have, someone, do you have money to spend? Or like, do you have a budget allocated for this, um, you know, this uh, advertisement that you want to, yeah, that, that you need? Or do you have, um, are you the person who signs a check? Are you the person who need, like, wh- or why do you need this? Why mm-hmm. is this, why else, why is this like a problem that you need to spend money? Must. Well, yeah, exactly. What's the reason behind the investment? Um, and why now? What's the timing? Or when, when is the timing? Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's, it's very, it's, it can go in many different directions, but there's much more elaborate versions of the same kind of qualification process that are, be, that become actually part of your sales process entirely mm-hmm. to manage it from start to finish, from the qualification uh, phase all the way to closing it. And wow. it's really cool because there's psychology involved, there's true like consultative, we call it consultative selling. Or in solution selling, but it's it's about aligning with what the customer wants. And you talked about being a bully and pushing, and yeah, movies give give salespeople that <laughs> rep. No doubt. Uh, but the reality is, the most successful salespeople that I've encountered in my career are the ones that are not perceived as this person just needs to hit a quota. But uh-huh. but these people can also call those customers and say, "Hey, I need to hit my quota." Because they built that credibility, they've built that that support. They've saved, they've helped the customer because they've 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 been able to map not only you need a solution that we offer, but also what it does for you and help you quantify it and help you become a hero. Yeah, right. Um. So there's so many like there's a challenger sale. There's one called the new strategic selling. Uh, there's uh, like there's so many. These are two that are top of mind for me right now. Um, this is the, these are the ones that we've recently been reading and rereading and rereading uh, at work. But there's there's a ton. Um, there's the what's another one that I really like. You talk about a negotiation. Um, 
Never Split the Difference is good. There's one called Selling More that I like. And one of my mentors actually recommended it because his, his negotiation MBA teacher at Warden uh, wrote the book. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he's like, you need to read this. And it helped me understand my, my, my mentor's way of thinking as well. I'm like, that's why he negotiates this way. And it's never about winning, right? And, and the idea exactly is about getting more and confrontational. You can't be confrontational in negotiation. Chris Voss says that immediately. You have to defuse it instantly. Yeah, defuse the negative. Yeah, because they have a hostage. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, they hold a hostage. So you can't, you and know, to press. cover those black swans. Yeah. Super exactly. important. Do you do anything specific? Uh, I know this is very movie-like, but do you do anything specific to get into the... Um, like, do you do any push-ups? Or do you tell yourself, or do you read a letter to yourself... Or do you get hyped up? Because sometimes we say this in our workshops a lot where uh, about 70% of communication is is body language mm. and how you look. And if it's a phone call mm. and they can't see your body language, they imagine your body language based on your tonality mm -hmm. and your energy. And, and uh, I'm not saying that to be the best salesman, you have to be like a Jim Carrey type of guy on the phone or whatever. Mm. But sometimes you do... You do want to be your best self in that on that call. What do you do to prepare for that call in addition to the research that you do? Do you just read the stuff? Do you do a couple push-ups? Or have do you have so much experience that you can just turn it on and you can turn it off? What type of things would you recommend to somebody that is starting for them to do and, and increase their odds of closing a deal? So preparation, we talked about that before. So knowing who I'm talking to, not only the company, but the person. How do you prepare? Do you stalk them on, on LinkedIn, yeah. Instagram, yeah, like, yeah. company website? Company website. Instagram. If they're a publicly traded company, there's there's public information about how the company's doing and what are the top priorities. You can generally find quotes from senior executives about why they perform in a certain way, what are some of the challenges they encounter, what's their direction going forward. Uh, there's... Um, you can see, you can read the reports as well and see like, where, where are they increasing investment? Where are they decreasing investment? Yeah. Right. So there's, there's a lot of things like that, that you can, that you can uh, read. And there's, there's a lot of sources of information right now that also do this actually for my, for my interview for Pivotry. Um, I was, I was asked frictionless to, commerce, frictionless commerce. <laughs> um, so that was given basically an assignment for as the last part of the interview. And it was give us an, like a plan to grow. So we have this, un, what we think is an untapped account. Yeah. And it was an account that was, a, you know, a fashion, luxury fashion retailer um, for women's fashion. And then we think it's largely untapped. We'd like to see how you think about approaching it and, and, and growing this account. Because we think it's untapped. But, we don't, we're, but we're not sure. So you, you got to tell us. Oh, right? boy. So... My conclusion there was don't waste your time. This account, like this company is going to file bankruptcy in the next six months to one year. And it's just not, not like they're, they're decreasing spend everywhere. They're selling all their assets. They're liquidating. <laughs> but, but that, but the discussion was, I didn't just tell them, but we should still try. Right. But it was, it was more like, guys, don't, let's not waste our time with this. That, and that was how I ended the presentation. Like this is, this account is a waste of time. Don't do it. Because the there's a huge opportunity cost in pursuing totally. stuff that's not worth pursuing. Totally, totally. But that that preparation helped me understand 
you know, I, I would I, normally you just go to a, to a, like if you don't prepare and you don't read all these things, you go in. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we can grow the account. <laughs> don't worry, I, you know, I, I know I know a few people there. I think right, I'm connected to a couple of folks. And I know a guy who knows a I guy know, who knows a guy. Yeah, yeah, I know a guy who you know I sold them something uh, once upon a time, and and they know someone there and whatever. But like, in, a lot of people still behave that way, and and a lot of sales are still conducted that way. But people who prepare have have an advantage. So yeah, I I 100% agree. So the preparation is one piece, knowing your customer, knowing your audience. Mm-hmm. Is there anything psychological or emotional or physical that you do on top of that? Well, when I was a an individual contributor, what does I, that mean? That means that I I have like I'm an individual salesperson with my own quota. Right now I have a team, right? Um but it is different it's a different dynamic. Yeah. Um, when you're responsible for your own number, it almost feels like um, one one of the LinkedIn sales influencers that I follow yeah. calls uh, calls uh, sales the um, it's called the corporate um, corporate corporate athletes. Oh yeah, because yeah, yeah. because it's so competitive, because it's it can be cutthroat. You know, you just you win or you lose, um, and you know you need to prepare a lot. To, to your point, like people recognize praise in private what. What it really have or in public, what really happens in private? Yeah, hundred percent. So it's like that tip of the iceberg illustration. Everything that happens below the water, underneath the water, is is really that that aspect of it that that matters so much. And you, everything you can control. There's a lot of things you can't control. You can't control that a company goes bankrupt. You can't control that. You know, they they fire everybody that you're talking to. You can't control that um, that your company has is going through restructurings, and, and all the people that were helping you sell something all of a sudden are gone. Um, there's so many things you can control, but it's important to identify the things you can control and find a path to keep them as much as possible within your control. And that set that starts with seeing things that are relatively basic, but still people get so busy. And so carried away, they don't do it, like yeah. setting expectations. One of those sales philosophies that we talked about before, um, that, you know, because I say I like to have, like, take a, a little bit from different ones, has something called the upfront contract. So the upfront contract is essentially a concept that if I'm going to meet with you, here's what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, and it's in its upfront, you're like, we're agreeing that this is what we're going to talk about. These will be the contents of our discussion. And this is essentially what we understand as a, as a, as a criteria to continue further discussions. So you set that expectation and they can tell you, well, we're not aligned. I want to talk about something else or that, that works. That works. Thank you. That, that's perfect. You can calibrate, but the idea is you're not wasting your time. You go yeah, in with a very important. clear expectation. And you're that. qualifying your lead at the same time. Totally. And, and it, the qualification is not usually like a one-time thing, right? You, you, you learn a few things. You can, you can, of course, but you learn a few things and you keep learning things. And yeah. then as the deal advances or, or just a time goes by, sometimes it doesn't advance, it gets stalled. It's important to sometimes take a step back and requalify it. And like, why are we not moving forward? Has something I changed? I like that, yeah. Has something changed? Are um, there are there any questions? I, I like to... I'm a big fan of questions that uncover in good good information tim ferris says that productivity is not a matter of necessarily what you do but it's it's also a a function of asking better questions do you have any go-to questions that you always do in in sales that 
have high impact or or things yeah. that uncover problems that you could probably ask uh, offer solutions to you know i think they're not specific to sales there are some that are there for example this um this framework for selling called sendler uh has the idea that there's essentially levels of questioning that you can take okay um at the most superficial level somebody's taking a sales call because they have a problem right yeah and they have a problem and that problem is usually my printer doesn't work and it's like okay so you maybe you're you're selling a printer right like okay no problem i can help you with that (laughs) and then and then and then the the next level question could be like okay so so why do you need a printer (laughs) right no but like for real like just because people are just like oh i have a printer he needs one easy peasy and then just stop there and and that can work but you're not going to uncover the motivations that are beneath that so another example is again you why do you need the printer what is your the impact of not having a printer yeah right you know what if i if i don't have a printer i have to commute for 45 minutes to the nearest i don't staples. know staples or ups store or whatever yeah. to to print what i need and you know i i work i work part time i study full time i just don't have the time so that that is just that that extra you know hour and a half that takes me to go there and back plus if it's busy i'm screwed <laughs> yeah right? that that those hour and a half to 2 hours are time valuable time for me to study to potentially work out to to cook a meal because I, you know otherwise i don't know if i can eat because i have to pr- i have to work on my all nighter yeah and you're like okay i get it and then and then like last last but not least right you can get into it and the printer's probably not the best example for this one but it's and why do you need a printer why are you looking for the printer and this is more when it comes to an organization why is this your problem to solve yeah and and that be, that that is your way to uncover a personal motivation all the way from you know what i'm looking for a promotion i think if we do this i'm going to get promoted to a vp and it's like, <laughs> and it's like and it's like okay cool or you know what this landed on my lap after a restructuring and i was just given a ton of responsibility i'm overwhelmed and i'm trying to make this work yeah. usually it takes a lot of work a lot of rapport to get to that third like question and to, to get to true like real answers you can ask them of course but you're not going to get real substance until you build real good rapport and you can use one of the chris vosses uh labeling it yeah. it sounds like it seems like it looks like you have a lot on your plate and then they'll tell you more there you go and so, then you can uncover there's a lot of ways to that these these are the only ones that i know and i use them all the time but, but that's that's perfect right and that you're doing what you should be doing like yeah. I, i think having more than one approach is helpful for different situations yeah and you, the more you know the more like you're like oh, i'm going to use you don't even think about it that way but you're like i know what to do in the situation and i think this from this particular methodology aligns closely and you're just thinking automatically about it when you're doing it for so long but you just nailed it like labeling is exactly uh-huh. like a really good way of saying it sounds like you're overwhelmed it yeah. sounds like um you have a big weight on your shoulders yeah you know and and it's like yeah <laughs> help me and it's, like, and it's like don't worry you know and, and we'll help I got you what you need i got what you need <laughs> But uh, just to answer your last question, right? So when it when it came down to being an individual contributor, you know, I think um it was athlete, co- corporate athlete. A corporate athlete indeed. I think it was it was um you're in control of your time. 
more, right? Because you're you're yeah. just depend on your own numbers, right? And that also gives you time to do other things that are, are fulfilling for yourself, right? So going to the gym or going to, you know, walk your dog for a longer period of time or going to a cafe and working from like, honestly, just more autonomy to do more things like that. Um, but to your point, what, 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 what did I do personally? I used, I used to love going to the gym or going to like hit a, um, like a, a boxing bag, right? Yeah, just like yeah, yeah. blow off steam and then start my day like that was amazing that was like it just got me going i was just like perfect like everyone's starting the day i already did so much yeah you know and i loved that and i think that we've lost some of that um a just because i'm still adjusting to my new role but b because post pandemic and when everyone's plugged in all the time yeah man there's a there's a less free time it's basically you you unplug for as long as you can you eat your dinner you wake up Sorry, you go to sleep. And you go back you to up, sit at your desk. And you get back to sitting at your desk. And that that is that is difficult, right? So I think a lot of companies, a lot of leaders are doing really good things to provide employees ways to recharge, but not just in the in the in yeah. You know, some people might not like me to use this but like the kumbaya way, just like, oh recharge and be happy <laughs> and you know. But but reality is you need energy and you need you need yeah, you, have, you know, your discipline at some point. We'll start to to find some cracks, you know. Absolutely, and productivity is not only a function of time; it's it's also about attention and energy, totally. which a lot of people don't take into account. The one thing I've heard so much from leaders and CEOs and executives in podcasts is that people managing is messy, man. And <laughs> and I'm not saying it in your case, but in, in general, you went from being uh, a top top player in all the companies that you worked at and now you are a director which incorporates not just managing people but now you're not just you're not the corporate athlete you're the corporate coach yeah, yeah so how have you evolved as a professional and what what advice would you give to other people venturing into leadership. Because mm-hmm. I find that like 90% of the world hates their bosses. <laughs> and then these the bosses don't wake up wanting to be horrible people. It's just the dynamic at times. And the worst thing is there's not you don't go to school to be a boss. Yeah. You don't there's no university to be a leader, mm. you know? So it seems <laughs> like the the best, the only way to learn how to people manage and be a a director or a VP and to influence is to, to learn on the job. But sometimes that's not enough. And now you, you don't have time to, you have so much more on your plate. So how have you adjusted Mm. to people managing, dealing with other projects, maybe having less leisurely time. Mm. Now you're married. How how have you been able to juggle all these Mm. new challenges? And my wife, Caro also became a manager. There you go. So Shout out to Caro. So, <laughs> so, so we're both kind of like in the same um, phase of our careers, like taking on our first um, leadership role, right? And we're both learning. It's kind of nice to have someone to talk to. To outside. cry together with. <laughs> <laughs> Gloop. <laughs> so I'll have have be like, ah, oh, long day. Just like, yeah, just having my, my, my glass of whiskey. With me. Just, <laughs> yes. It's Monday, three o'clock. What are you talking about? <laughs> It's been okay. a long week, Tuesday, 10 a.m. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, 
how do I, I think the adjust, it, the, the adjustment process is long, right? It, it's not something you learn overnight. You can read as many books and you can, you can follow the right leaders and hear the right quotes. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you are accountable for results and, you, and yeah, the, the results of your team. That's a tough pill um, to swallow at times. Totally. Right. And, but at the same time, there's sales has something that's good and bad. You're either performing. Or you're not performing. Wow. Right. And it's good because you're not wondering, I hope I'm doing okay. You're yeah. never wondering, I, I think I'm valued. Yeah. The scoreboard <laughs> is clear. It's clear. Right. It's 100% clear. And, and it's tough when things aren't going well. Right. And when things aren't going well, it's important to be so like self critical and have thick skin. And that's something I've actually developed over the years. Right. Um, you got to have that tough look in the mirror and be like, why am I last? Well, I, I think, you know, part of, you know, I said I have, I've had good mentors, but I've also had really difficult conversations, you know, conversations that I think could also arguably break some people, right? In, in terms of like how pointed they are and how like, I would like say Like being on the receiving end? Or yeah, also yeah, yeah. Giving... Being, being on the receiving end. And I try, I try and my team, if my team is listening to this, <laughs> shout out to my team. <laughs> But I think, you know, in the early days, I was definitely less tactful with my feedback to the team. In my, in my, and I say the early days as if I've been here and doing this for 10 years. <laughs> but even even a year ago, six months ago, like I, I'm very mindful of what I'm doing. And am I, did I say the right thing? And it's not about overthinking it, but I'm, I try to try to be better. And that tactical also, empathy. Tactic. Then, Chris Voss 2.0 over here. Yeah, I've yeah. read it twice yeah. in a row for any first book in my life that I yeah. read consecutively. Um, so, so I think this process of adjustment to, to leadership is difficult because you want to help them, but you don't realize that helping can take so many different shapes. Uh-huh. Right. Um, so my initial reaction, having been a, a, a good salesperson for the company was, Roll up my sleeves and I'm going to do it with you. Uh-huh. That was my first reaction. And in some cases, that's important to do. It gives you street cred. Um, it shows your team that you're, you, you, you got their back and, and you can work with them. But it also can send the wrong message. It can send the, the message that you're a micromanager. It mm. can send the wrong, the message that apparently nothing that I'm doing is right because he did it completely differently. And mm-hmm. I was guilty of doing those things in, at the beginning, just being so mindful of but the results but the results at all costs at all costs and actually i knew this but sometimes you need reminders from talking to people and they talked to one of our leaders in the company and he was just like you have to let people like people learn more and they learn the most when they fail mm-hmm. right and, and and i'm like i haven't given them the possibility of failing because i've been so like we're not failing here, you know. <laughs> like, like, and 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 I'll, and I'll just get in there with them and work with them, like long hours and whatever was needed. And I took a different approach. Not to say that I I got disconnected by it, but I'm working on on helping them figure things out because I I believe that you know these people are are very capable of of uh, solving problems that are difficult. Yeah. Um. And and doing that on on their own and then raising their hand when they need help and then telling me where I can help versus me telling I'm going to help here, mm-hmm. which was my initial kind of like, I would just airdrop myself into these conversations. 
but it's a uh, it's it's hard because where do you draw the line? There's no handbook for this, you know. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to read the situations, and you could do the same thing, same great. I'll, I'll jump mm-hmm. in where they need me, but even the same action mm-hmm. can have a different result because it's different people. Mm-hmm. You have one person from uh, maybe Costa Rica, and then you have another person from Australia or Afghanistan or Ukraine, and they will see it in a different way because I was raised with different in a different way, in a different environment, with different parents and different values. I have a different communication style, so it's very tricky. Mm. I know that your mom has been influential in your in your career, obviously in your life. Tell me about humble and brave. Oh yeah. You know, sometimes I think this happens to most people. Sometimes you need to have a little bit of a of a pep talk from from your mother, your father, your yeah. like someone someone senior in your family, right? That you respect. That you respect and that can just ground you and just remind you like, okay, right now I'm talking to my my son, my nephew, my grandson, or even my brother, right? In 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 a very safe space. Yeah. Um and I was just sharing some problems that I was having and at one point in my career. And she just said, hey, just, she said like so effortlessly, just be humble, be honest, and be brave. And and you'll figure it out. And I'm just, and I'm just like, I'm going to, I'm going to turn this into like something that I remember constantly, right? And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that, um, you know, the, the, for example, preparation shows humility because you're like, I'm not taking anything for granted. I'm I'm taking I'm not making too many assumptions. Mm-hmm. Confidence and humility are not different. They're 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 very different things, and they can be completely compatible. You can be a confident and assertive person yeah. with a ton of humility. Absolutely. Right? The honesty piece is also like you owe it not only to the people you talk to, but you owe it to yourself. Uh-huh. What 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 about when you when you need to speak up, and when you need to call out the problems that you're having, and when you need help. You owe it to yourself as well. That honesty is 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 um, oxygen, right? And then, lastly, bravery and and there's bravery and courage are slightly sim- um, slightly different. But she said brave, and I think it has to do with just remembering what took me here and what took what actually got me into the first roles and what made me successful was that I was not afraid of making mistakes. Mm-hmm. As you grow up, quote unquote. It's no longer just about you. It's about your family. It's about your wife. It's about your baby. It's about your dog, right? Like there's all these things. So you just feel this pressure, but you have to remember, I'm here for a reason. What took me here? And, and, And if you remember those things and, and that's when the whole eye of the tiger can come back in. Yes. That's, it just goes full circle. It's like eye of the tiger. As, as we close this episode, can you talk about the Eye of the Tiger, man? <laughs> the Eye of the Tiger, just not not the song. Oh but yeah, yeah, yeah. Your it's yeah. almost like your your motto, your 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 letter to yourself when things get tough or when you have an important sales call. Mm. Eye of the Tiger. Yeah, that's basically it, right? When whenever I'm I'm feeling like I need to prepare for something that has had a lot of build up, it could be external, it could be internal. And I'm just like, you know, and I just tell myself like Apollo Creed till Rocky and Rocky three. Yeah. I the tiger stallion. I the tiger. <laughs> and, and I just, for some reason, 
it's so cheesy and so ridiculous, but for some reason that is something that grounds me. And I love it. I love it because it's kind of like, it's also light. It's not, it's something that, again, like, I think most people can relate to. But for me, I just, re- I just tell that to myself going into an important call, an important meeting. Um, I don't think I said it when I was about to walk, walk down the aisle, but that would have been another good, <laughs> another good moment, right? Absolutely. I have, I have mine too. I have a letter to myself up there. And I'm like, who am I? <laughs> I am a Costa Rican Irish animal, like yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right. like. And I, I always picture Conor McGregor when in the waves, yeah. just be like, ah, <laughs> and I'm like, let's go. And, yeah. and what you say, the the humble be brave, man. That 100 percent, and be honest, because at the end of the day, one of my friends' uh, dads, I, I we asked him once. And uh, he's from Venezuela, Caco, Caco's dad, uh, Luis. I was like, what, what is your definition of success? And he's like, going to sleep with peace every night. And when you're humble and you're honest and you're brave, hmm. you're going to be able to sleep. Yeah. And to me, 100% that's success. The last question that every guest on the podcast gets is the champagne question. If we were to meet a year from now with a bottle of champagne, hmm. 2024... What are we celebrating in Gustavo's life? Oof, that's a good question. It's a great sales question, too, because it gets people to talk about what they're passionate about. Yeah, what's your 12 month plan? <laughs> um, to be honest, it, it would be that, you know, we're having a great time on a, on a Sunday night, on a Sunday, having barbecue at my place and like that, just life. To me, I don't need something specific, but if we can go back to getting together with the people you love as much as you, as much as you can, as much as you want, just because you can, and just because everyone can, and they will show up, that's to me the best thing ever, right? Um, throwing a barbecue and just being, having, knowing that you guys are going to show up. Absolutely. That's to me, that's, that's success. I don't need a big event. I don't need anything like that. If we're all having a good time and if we're all doing well in our lives, and even if we're not, that's going to be um, a great reunion. Like we we f- like our, we feed off each other's energy, um, and that would be that'll be good. So, a year from now, barbecue in my place. <laughs> Everybody was here in the podcast in about a year. Bevan will cook though. Yeah, without an ACO. <laughs> my friends, oh my god, what an episode! Not just sales tips, m- meant like high performance mindset tips. The nomad, the director of sales, the unbreakable, the unmistakable, Gustavo Chat bro. Thank you so much, man. I really admire you. Ah! I also admire you. you for breaking my picture here. <laughs> oh, it was, it was Liam's too. Oh, my God. Terrible. No. We come to the end of this episode. Man, what an episode. Thank you so much for your time. We've been trying to get this going here for months because yeah. I really admire what you do. You I turn was. it on and you turn it off. You've been a great influence to all of us, and we can't wait to have you back. Thanks, man. Look forward to more episodes. Gustavo Chavez and Stefan Dyer on the Stefan Dyer Podcast. Ciao, ciao. Gracias por escuchar el Stefan Dyer Podcast. Arrivederci, my people.